the Going Coastal Podcast, the students and new professionals chapter podcast of the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association and hosted by the American Shoreline Podcast Network. I'm one of your co-hosts, Heather Wade. And I'm another one of your co-hosts, Marissa Torres. In this episode, we will be kicking off our Coastal Policy and Planning series, where we'll talk about this different side of being a coastal professional, where science meets action through law, policy, and planning. For today's episode, we will be discussing the Sea Grant Canals Fellowship, an educational and professional opportunity for graduate students with an interest in ocean and coastal resources and in the national policy decisions that affect those resources. The fellowship matches graduate students with hosts in the legislative and executive branches of government in the Washington, D.C. area for a one-year paid fellowship. Joining us for this conversation is a former Canals Fellow, Hank Hoddy, who is currently the Sustainability and Resiliency Coordinator at Pinellas County in Florida. Thank you so much for being here, Hank. Yeah, thank you for having, having me. It's a pleasure. So Hank, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? What are, where are you from and what is your educational background? Sure, yeah. So I grew up on um, the east coast of Florida, a place called Stewart. It's just, uh, I call it the most northern part of South Florida. Um, so it was a quiet little community with a nice coastline and good surf and fishing and um, also a place that was prone to hurricanes. And so I had a good mix of you know, enjoying the vi- environment while uh, being conscious of some of the harms that um, can be brought from it and the impacts to communities. Um, so growing up there, you know, I, I went to a college in, in Florida. I went to Florida State uh, University and um, got my undergraduate degree in residential sciences, which is basically housing and construction and property management. And then in uh, 2010, I went to the University of Houston Clear Lake and got my master's in environmental management. Um, That program is in Texas, and it just so happens the work that I conducted at graduate school got me the Knauss Fellowship through Texas Sea Grant. Um, So um, my work there involved post-disaster analysis and data collection and and really looking at the impacts that hurricanes were having on communities and the processes that they were going through. And I think that work just, you know, elevated um, my my interest in doing something more nationally. Uh, And the Knauss Fellowship was just a a good match. So it just kind of came together. That's awesome. And so kind of building off of that, what would you say coastal management and policy mean to you? So with everything that I've experienced, you know, as an individual, as a community resident, as a professional at the local and federal and regional levels, I guess coastal management and and policy means being allowed and, and understanding the nuances um, of your coastal area, both the strengths and weaknesses, and then knowing the relationship between what's happening at the local level from a policy standpoint, the state and the federal, and interpret, interpreting those things together 
for local decisions and actions. So I, I know that's a, a mouthful, but you know where I'm at now in Florida, I need to understand and know and relate to the coastal environment within this region, within this bay, the local ecosystems, what the policy and political will is at the local level, match that with the state and the tempo of that, and then know what's happening at the federal level and what is going to come down to us directly or, or through the state. You know, and that's different for any coastal area, obviously, because you have different, you know, things to manage, as well as different policy and political arenas to navigate. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, I actually just wanted to recap. So your current position and role, so you're in Florida now, um, is I'm not totally familiar with all the counties in Florida. So the Pinellas County, is that anywhere near where you grew up? No. So it's on the west coast of Florida in the Tampa region. Um, and in fact, I never came here uh, until later in my life to, to this region. Um, but no, it's on the central west coast and I grew up pretty much on the central east coast. Sure. Yeah. So in your current role as sustainability and resilience coordinator um, in, in everything and in, in what coastal management and policy mean to you, um, what do you, what is your favorite part of working as the sustainability and resiliency coordinator in that county? I think it's making connections and building relationships um, between different disciplines um, and professions internally and externally, and knowing a little bit about everything. I mean, that's something that I really pride myself on is being a jack of all and being able to dip into the different professions um, that are related, you know, to local government. Uh, and, but also knowing, you know, a little bit about what external entities and stakeholders are interested in, um, depending on their, on their mission and, and their values. Um, so it's, that's something I thrive myself on. Sure. So you've, uh, had the opportunity to, to, from where you grew up to where you are now is a similar landscape. So you were mentioning that even at all of these levels, there is such a wide range of environmental conditions that feed into this post-disaster analysis and 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 how a region is able to recover after um, such a natural disaster along the coastline. Um, so, what is what do you think in your experience? Um, what was it like working in different areas or paying attention to different environmental conditions along along the U.S. coastline? So, where was maybe where was your favorite? Yeah. So, I guess. Um well, I'll tell you that growing up in a semi-pristine natural environment and living that every day or weekend recreationally in Florida and then moving to Houston and Galveston Bay was my biggest um, shock and awe moment <laughs> regarding interaction with the natural environment. I mean, I had never seen an oil refinery until going out there and living there and having a boat and, you know, trying to find a good surf break in a, in an area that 
where the water didn't taste bad. I put it that way, but that's what it was, you know, like, um, uh, that was my awakening and, um, it made me appreciate the different values of different environments and to take the good and the bad with all them, you know? And so I learned a lot living in Galveston Bay and, you know, Texas has a large, beautiful coast and, and there's many different purposes and uses and something to really be appreciated. And as part of my graduate school, I was lucky enough to do environmental sampling along a lot of the coast. So I got to see more than just Galveston Bay. Um, after I lived in Washington, D.C. for uh, the Canals Fellowship, I moved to Mobile, Alabama. And I, I got to live in a Bay Delta system in the Northern Gulf that again, had different ecosystems and different species and, you know, uh, different appreciation from the, from the community and values. And, um, you know, now coming back to Florida, I feel like I've been exposed to the right type of environments to help me have a well-rounded appreciation for all the different issues and everything that's going on, uh, professionally and, and, and things that need to happen into the future. Um, so, you know, I, I, as an example, you know, we're trying to create a living shoreline program here in Pinellas County. Um, we have a lot of seawalls and um, we have a lot of coastline to protect. And it just so happens that in Texas and Louisiana and Mobile and Mississippi or Alabama, Mississippi, they're doing a lot of living shoreline work and I have connections there. So I'm able to, you know, bring that expertise and connect them with folks here. So I can't say that there's one favorite environment, um, but I've been exposed to a suite of them that have allowed me to become, I think, a semi well-rounded professional. I do know what you mean about the the water on the Texas coast. I I also would say that it's the brown. The brown gets me. Yeah, it's it's just weird. It is weird. <laughs> um, one of the things I wanted to follow up on, Hank, you mentioned um, one of the things you really liked about your job is the connections you make and and how you get to work with you know all sorts of different people and and you kind of get to be a jack of all trades. Um, I was curious, you know, do you work in, and it sounds like you do, but um, in interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary teams, I'm curious, you know, what type of other professionals do you work with? So like coastal engineers, marine biologists, um, I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, as the resilience person who's you know, in sustainability, he's wor working on climate impacts, flooding, things like that. I would say my bestie is the floodplain administrator. So always get with that person wherever you are. Um, but I, I coming in, I, I worked closely at first a lot with um, professionals in our public works department. And those are folks that do watershed planning, stormwater, um, environmental management, you know, that was more my, my background, my, my forte. Um, so it's easy to relate and connect with them and understand what, what they're doing. So I, I do work with those folks. I, you know, work with the engineers, both, you know, transportation and stormwater, 
but also utilities. Um, but some of the other disciplines I work with um, are I'm, I'm working on our electric vehicle uh, transition and implementation. So I work with fleet. Um, I'm trying to figure out how we can have better energy efficiency and utilization of renewable energy. So I'm working with our facilities folks. Um, I'm understanding not only what we do for waste diversion and recycling, but how our waste to energy plant, which produces up to energy to um, run up to 40,000 homes a day, how that works. So not only am I working with, you know, the recycling outreach coordinator, but the engineers um, and managers and supervisors for that facility. Um, I work with our planning department. I work closely with our emergency management department. Um, we're try to, I try to work with all of them. And if I don't know about their work, then I shadow them and I go in the field and do ride-alongs and learn as much as I can so that I can you know, talk their language and, and be a partner and, and collaborate as best as possible. Interesting. That is a wide range of people in a wide range of areas. I like it. So would you say that your current job is, is more on the policy side or more planning oriented? It's more on the um, policy and program side. Policy and program. So what is that? What does that mean? So as someone who is totally outside of coastal policy, what is it actually, what, do you, what does coastal policy really mean um, and, and, and those programs? What are you doing? Yeah. So policy, I feel like is, you know, we hear the term, the first term that you really learn and understand when you go to DC is sausage making, right? That's what they call policy making. And it's just um, a variation of ideas, statutory requirements, political leanings, um, deals, concessions, you know, everything that gets thrown together to create a policy. Um, and so taking that to the, to the local level, you know, there's policies in place that um, we um, are become the caretakers of, you know, because they've been in place for decades. And then we try to amend or revise them based on new knowledge. And really, when you look at policy, you're looking at the long game. You know, you're trying to think about conditions of the past, uh, um, values of the present, and then changes in the future, and try to come to some basic understanding um, and consensus for a direction that can be enforced. Um, you know, there's different levels of policy. You know, for instance, some could say a comprehensive plan is a policy, but, you know, really that sets policy values and goals. And then you still have to go change the, you know, land development regulations or zones or building codes or things like that. So there's a snowball effect. And so, um, yeah, policy is something that's circulating in the air. It's around you. You have to be mindful of it. Uh, you have to strategize. 
Um, and then there's, you know, programs and projects that are day-to-day actions, things you can really, you know, dig your hands and teeth into and, you know, turn out workable items that provide positive impact to the community, can inform future policy. Uh, so they, there's a really symbiotic relationship. And I think just being new to my role, um, you know, it takes a while even to be trusted to work on policy, really. And um, there's 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 a lot of hands in it. So um, that's, I don't know, that's my interpretation of it right now. Um, things change and you have to go with the change and and provide your best interpretation you know from the federal or state level down to the local or vice versa you know if you're at the state level or federal and you want to create something impactful and meaningful you need to be mindful of what's going on on the ground so um th- there's there's a lot there and you know i'm i'm happy i'm at a place now where i'm able to work on projects that can inform policy and you know, i can provide examples of that if needed but that's my interpretation. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, that's a lot. I wrote down policy is equal to sausage making. That's right. Oh my gosh. I I love that example. I also wrote down a note on that. I'm probably going to use that example for the rest of my life. I guess I will have to uh, credit you for that, Hank. Okay, so... A little bit more on the Knauss Fellowship. Actually, um, Marissa and I, before this uh, episode recording, uh, we were talking a little bit about the pronunciation, Hank, about Knauss. And, um, you know, there's this this controversy about how to pronounce it. And I think you know that, that it's this thing where people say, some people say Nos and some people say Knaus. And so I, I promised I would bring this up to to get your uh, insights on that controversy. Yeah, I heard Naus um, rather than Nos. Uh, yeah, I, I, I know it as Knaus. You know, I've never met a family member of Dean uh, John A. Knaus, but that's how I say it. And that's how I learned it from other fellows. Yeah, that's good. You had that exposure. I remember when I was in grad school, I literally was just, it was just Nos, Nos, Nos. And then I didn't know it was pronounced Canals until like two weeks ago. So we're doing great. We're learning. (laughs) Yeah, so interesting. Oh, goodness. But anyway, so earlier you were talking about, you know, your education and, and, how you determined that the Knauss Fellowship was a good fit for you. But I was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit and tell us about, you know, how did you determine that that was a good fit? I mean, what really pushed you to apply for the Knauss Fellowship as opposed to, you know, say, going for your PhD in, a, in some type of coastal management or planning program? It's a really good question. Yeah, because I, I really considered it and um, I would have become a, an Aggie if that was the case. Um, so uh, I, I, honestly, I was at the Restore America's Estuaries Conference in Galveston in 2010. 
And it was like one of the first major conferences I went to as a graduate student. And yeah, I, I'm someone that likes to, you know, be in and out of the sessions and walk the halls and, you know, go, you know, to the tables and, you know, speak with the vendors. And I was just so eager about all of this. And um, I was talking to anybody that was willing to listen. And so here I am talking with, you know, the conference sponsors and vendors and their federal employees, you know, and so I'm talking with scientists and program managers at EPA and NOAA. And I got to uh, befriend one of the, uh, uh, a woman from NOAA. And she's, I mean, flat out after talking with me, I guess she saw my, you know, eagerness and intent and, you know, my yearning to try to inhibit change and um, positivity at the time. And she's like, you should be a Canals fellow. And she told me about it. I learned about it. Um, and, you know, I went back to my graduate advisor and she's like, yeah, that's a great goal. Let's do it. And yeah, I was the first fellow from my school. I was an underdog. And um, at that point, I shifted everything that I did in graduate school because I just started to get the fellowship and I got it. So I spent two years, you know, working on my research, my CV, my leadership development. I mean, I became president of, of the student body just so I could get some experience in that. And um, um, I got an internship with Department of Homeland Security, you know, at the Chapel Hill, North Carolina for a summer to do research. And uh, I, it was just a turning point. It just clicked. It was like, this makes sense. I want to go to DC. I want to do this. This is my chance. This is my opportunity. And I, I just, you know, grabbed a hold of the situation and, and ran with it and um, got it. Wow. So you figured out pretty early on. It doesn't sound like, you know, you just heard of the application window opening up and you said, I think I'll apply for that. You you learned about it and you were preparing for for a couple of years. Wow, that is that is impressive. And the, thanks. And the the position I got was the position I wanted. So Yeah, yeah, well, and that was my next question. What yeah. is the um host agency that you ended up working with? Yeah, so I was the um Coastal Resilience and Sustainable Development Coordinator in the National Sea Grant Office. So I worked at NOAA Sea Grant, basically. I just have a quick question um, as someone who doesn't maybe understand like the how the Canals Fellowship kind of integrates with your with your graduate studies and your graduate research. So is this something that you're supposed to, like you apply for when you're almost ready to finish your master's? Uh, and does it like delay your master's by a year, like while you go off and do this, if you were to do it in the middle, like how does that work with timing and graduating? It it, it depends on what your timing and schedule looks like. Um, honestly, I mean, I, you know, and, and, and sorry, I, I didn't go back to answer the full question. You know, I, before I considered my PhD, but I knew that this fellowship was an entry point into the professional world. And so I went with that. Um, I will say that there were fellows in my class that, you know, just had their thesis left to submit for their master's or, you know, they're still working on their PhD. 
And so they applied um, per the window and opportunity and received it and then worked on finishing school. You know, they're at least in graduate school or done with their master's. Um, some had considered their PhD, but they didn't go get it because, you know, they got hired by a federal agency afterwards and didn't think that they needed to. I, uh, there were a few that, um, worked a few years in the federal workforce and then went back and got their PhD. You know, for me, I lined everything up. So, you know, I graduated, um, in, in the fall and started the fellowship in the spring. So in December, I was done. In January, I was up in Washington, D.C. So I made it, I, you know, I strategically, you know, aligned my timeline. And that was probably impressive to the people who were reviewing my application. I think it all depends. You know, if you, you know, if you're in towards the, I mean, they, they have requirements and guidelines on where you should be in school and things like that. And, you know, they all want you to, nobody's going to like, they're not going to take you and not let you finish school, but you want to at least be done with your master's. Um, and, um, because it's really, really hard, uh, to do academic work on the, on the side when you're up there. Um, especially, yeah. yeah so it, it depends on the individual, it depends on the opportunity. It depends on the advisor, you know, um, you could have an advisor that is about to retire and they could be like, listen, this is my last hurrah to send you on this fellowship, you better take it, you know, and then you, you just make it work. So, um, just depends. There's no, it's not black and white. There's, there's some gray. That was my understanding too, that, uh, you know, graduate students typically apply for the fellowship once they know that they're really toward the end of their program. And at least for PhD students, they tend to, apply when they know that they'll just have their dissertation left to finish. Mm -hmm. um, I've heard stories of PhD students that are fellows that end up, you know, doing their fellowship during the day and then spend their nights <laughs> sitting in their apartments trying to write their dissertation. With, you know, which is the one thing you don't want to do in Washington, D.C. You want to experience it. You're there for a year and you don't know if you're going to stay or leave, honestly. and. Um, you know, the, the federal agencies love hiring these fellows. It's kind of like having an employee on, um, um, you know, on a waiver and, you know, they're great. They're great. They work out, but that they don't always have the FT, the full-time employee capacity to make the hire. So you just don't know. And um, I'll be honest, I thought I'd be, I was going to be in DC longer than I was. And there was things that I didn't get to or do or experience, you know, because I, I was only there like 16 months or something. Um, but you want to you want to make it the best experience of your life. Um, that said, you know, if you have that obligation, then then get it done. You know, I will say that um, I probably had some journals that I was hoping to submit and publications, and I I just didn't get around to it. Um, so it's you know, you want to immerse yourself in what's happening there. You want to be in the moment. Uh, but also, if you have the opportunity to do it, do it, right? Yeah. So there's definitely some sacrifice, it sounds like. And 
if they're if you still have school obligations, I'm guessing there's a lot of, you know, time management planning that has to occur, but I guess it it sounds to me like you're saying it's it's worth it as long as you can, you know, manage your time appropriately. Correct. I know I know of no argument for it being not worth it. So going back to your work with the National Sea Grant Office, um, did you have a primary project that you worked on? Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, and uh, honestly, I don't know how things have changed within the position, um, but at the time, the National Sea Grant Program had f- four focus areas and I was the coordinator for two, and there was another fellow who's the coordinator for the other two. And um, so my job was, my primary job was to collect information from all of the Sea Grant programs and condense it into communication and material to be absorbed at the national level or even be dispersed back out to the program. So I, you know, would basically, you know, try to summarize what we were doing in regards to sustainability and resiliency. Um, you know, that involved working with subject matter experts at the at the different Sea Grant offices or programs. Um, it involved collecting performance measure data. Um, it, it involved um, understanding some of the research that was coming out. And, um, you know, and that work also led to uh, the, um, to inform NOAA goals or a NOAA strategic plan or the National Sea Grant Office strategic plan. So that was my primary. Yeah. And, and I think you mentioned that it, it was focused on resiliency, correct? Yes. At the time, um, you know, coastal resilience is really taking off at the federal level. So we spent more time uh, building the resiliency portfolio and, you know, the sustainable development portfolio per se was kind of just on, you know, automatic drive, if you will, or autopilot. Were you or your team at, at the National Sea Grant Office also coordinating or collaborating with other federal agencies at all? Yeah. Yep. Good question. Uh, Yes, as much as we could. And that was the thing was that we were trying to sell the National Sea Grant Program and NOAA to other federal agencies. Um, So I think, you know, a lot of federal agencies knew what NOAA was doing, but not necessarily what Sea Grant was doing. And so that was what we're trying to convey and communicate. It's like, hey, not only does NOAA do this work, but Sea Grant does it. And because of that, it means it's happening on the ground with extension agents, you know, with research in every coastal state, you know, and so that was um, a really good opportunity to be able to provide a, a position and stance for NOAA, which is such a remarkable agency, but then also to relay information that's happening on the ground, because uh, not a lot of that is communicated in DC or what they call inside the beltway. Um, and so that was a, that was a really great honor. Um, we, the, the other thing, the other unique thing about the fellowship is that 
you know, you opened up by saying it's in, in the legislative and executive branch. Uh, you know, your supervisors have connections with other federal agencies, maybe. But if they don't, there's a Knauss fellow there, or there was one, right? And so you start to work with your Knauss partners who are in different agencies, you know, and then you get to meet alumni at social events or something like that and make connections there. So you actually start to create inroads into other federal agencies, which is pretty cool. Um, I came in, as an example, I came in with connections at FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and I was able to bring that into the student office and we were able to work with FEMA um, on some on some collaborations. And so uh, it was that was really, really exciting to, to do that work. Absolutely. And like the skills just in communicating, networking and like that whole study thing is is probably something that as a computer nerd on the engineering side, that's something that we're definitely lacking. And that's something that I feel you would really need to excel at or, or quickly gain those skills to work in the coastal policy field for sure. Um, just for perspective for myself and our listeners, what year did you do your Canals Fellowship in D.C.? So what time period are we referencing here with in terms of the current state of the nation? 2013. Um, and so from, from that time uh, in D.C., what would you say were the major highlights of your fellowship? I know you've mentioned so many great things, but if you had to pick maybe a top three, what were your greatest highlights? Um, that's a... It's a really good question. It's a hard one because there are different types of highlights. Um, my highlights as a fellow, uh, I have, I, I, I was able to work on building my professional uh, portfolio and develop as a professional and build a network, um, something that nobody can ever take away from me. Um, it, you know, what I did there and what I was able to take from there is something that resonates anywhere I go. You know, um, every interview, every job. I mean, not a lot of people at organizations have federal experience. Um, the network that I built and the friendships that I built are there for a lifetime. And we, we, there's, I think, 52 of us, we, you know, jumped in neck deep at the same time with the fire hose and all experienced it together. And I think that was something that was incredible. And then just being in DC, just being in Washington, DC and living the culture and the excitement that was there at the time and, you know, the events and just being exposed to um, the institutional and intellectual mindset that exists up, up there, it was just something completely different. I, I was just uh, blown away by the type of people that work there, the professionals. I felt like I, you know, everyone was driven, everyone was smart, and I just felt like I belonged. And I think that um, that was something that was, you know, a lightning for me, uh, uh, you know, as an individual. Um, we also got to do some like unique site visits and I'll never forget um, our trip to the Naval Observatory um, where the vice president's residence actually exists 
And um, we, so we got to like walk the grounds and the like one of the Navy's three atomic clocks are there or something. And um, we got to learn about the history of that site. And um, we got to like see the vice president go into his motorcade or something. Uh, that was that was pretty cool. Um, and if there's one more, uh, because of the the good the great thing about the legislative fellows is they invite everyone to uh, congressional receptions, and so we would always crash uh, these um, sponsored receptions in Congress at the House or Senate. I mean, and these like lobbying associations they have these like evening events on the regular and uh, we got to go to one that was from like the American zoo association or something. And so they have this big evening reception and hors and yeah, adult beverages and zoo animals. And so like, we're walking around with like flamingos next to us inside the congressional building. It was insane. It was awesome. It was just like, I don't know, I was a kid in a candy store. A lot of us were. Sounds like a wild ride. That is awesome. You can't beat adult beverages and flamingos. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they have like a koala. It was it was nuts. Yeah, what a way to get Congress to appreciate, you know, what zoos do for zoos do for animals, right? From rehabilitation and species protection and so, you know, you learn about that, right? It's more than just, you know, support us so we have funding, but, you know, this is what we do for animals, endangered animals, you know, and so there's a backstory, right? Uh, so that, I, that was cool. It was just really unique exposure. Sure. So it seems like a really high-paced, exciting environment. Now, I'm wondering if you or any of your fellow canals um, – fellows during that time that you were there wherever if you ever got frustrated with you know dealing with the policy and the politics being right there on Capitol Hill and all of that energy in the air whether it's positive or negative and how maybe you overcame those frustrations or or handled them yeah that's a good question so i think there were some people that had they definitely had a um more volatile profile than me, you know, and that's what they were picked for and chosen for. And, um, they either loved it or hated it, you know, and, and really this, the, the supervisor is your mentor and the person who wants the fellow and knows that they're getting somebody bright and someone who's adaptable and nimble and flexible. And so they provide cover and understanding and meaning to things. And so when you get frustrated, you know, you could be in one meeting and you walk away and you could blow up and be like, how could they think like this? And it should be this easy. And, you know, that person will say, okay, I, I understand. Calm down. We've been having the same dialogue for eight years. You know, this is, you know, they, they're, those federal employees are there for the long game and they've gone through many administrations, many swings of the policy pendulum. And that's something that I think is honorable. And they, the good ones have really, really level heads and make you understand 
what's happening. And that's the real value in the experience there, you know, there's no, you know, deals don't happen overnight or there, there are no just quick deals. It's compromise. It's appreciation. It's, you know, process. And when you get, um, submerged in that, you know, you usually have somebody to, to pick you up out of it or somebody that teaches you through it and you learn how to navigate and that's a skill within itself. So you, you just take it as you, you take it as an opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I know that I can definitely be overcome with frustration and be overwhelmed by my emotions sometimes. So it's um, I could never be in coastal policy uh, unless I learn how to handle those types of things. So I guess that's something for users to consider or potential applicants to consider for sure. Yeah. And I guess, you know, one thing that, you know, as I reflect on my years since DC, I mean, we were doing so many exciting things uh, with climate and resiliency. And, you know, I, I mentioned the policy pendulum and, you know, good ideas never die. And um, when I was there, we created what's called the Federal Flood Risk Management Standard. And it's not a bad policy. It's a good policy. And it's it's saying, hey, like, Federal agencies, if they build something, they should be mindful of flooding conditions and future hazards. They should build to the 500-year flood standard. You know, they should do, do some other things. Like, it was a really good thing for climate and floodplain management. And that was rescinded in, like, the first week of the previous administration, right? And there was probably, like, one person in the White House that made that happen, Right. Like maybe they didn't like somebody that created it. Who knows, right? But now it's back on the table and it was reinvigorated. And I just saw this week that like every federal agency now has a climate action plan. You know, we have all these climate people in the White House. We have a climate czar. You know, there's like sustainability.gov. The EPA's climate data is back online. So the, I, I mean... Being in this in this field, it's so frustrating when things start to regress and slide back. But seeing things long term and having lived through th- some things long term now, I guess ten years, I don't know. Um, good ideas. Some of the good ideas didn't die, and they're back on the table, and. Um, you know, I, I, I wish we didn't regress on some coastal policy, you know, um, but it's not like it, it went away forever. It's still here. And, you know, the, you know, people are still in, in the corners and the shadows fighting the good fight. And that's something I, I, I learned in, in, in DC. Um, so I guess I, I guess I would just have that reflection to, to add on that comment. I can relate to that, Hank. As a policy professional, um, you know, I tend to be an idealist and, uh, you know, that kind of puts me in a a difficult position doing policy work because um, of exactly what you've been describing. And so it's something that I've had to work on over the past 
you know, decade as well. And uh, it's really taught me patience because things don't happen overnight. And something that might, you know, something that you and your team might try to implement one year uh, might fail, but then might come back in five years. And so uh, it's it's definitely um, usually a marathon and not a sprint. And so uh, it's sometimes not for everyone, but very, very critical. And um, I really appreciated how you ended that with a such a positive and optimistic uh, spin. And I totally agree with you. Um, I wanted to kind of go back to your comment earlier about Alabama. Um, so you had mentioned that you had done some work in Alabama. Uh, so I, can you tell us a little bit about after your fellowship, um, you know, where did you really go from there? You know, how did that influence your path? Yeah, sure. I ended up, after the fellowship, I got a contract position with NOAA. Um, and so I, I ended up going to um, a different office um, in NOAA, the Office for Coastal Management. And... Um, it was a new office that was a merger uh, between the Office for Coastal Zone Management and um, the Coastal Services Center. Uh, so if you've ever gone online and seen like the Digital Coast website, yeah, I, I worked in that office. Um, I, was, I was one of eight fellows out of 52 that actually had a position lined up after the fellowship in like November, December. Everyone was like freaking out because they weren't hiring at the time. Believe it or not, like President Obama actually enforced, you know, uh, a shutdown and 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 restriction on hiring new FTEs, but um, or full time employees. Um, so I accepted a position in this office, and I was a program officer for Coastal Zone Management in the Gulf of Mexico, and. Um, I thought I was getting Texas, Louisiana, and Alabama, but the person who had, there's like a program officer assigned to each state. The person who had Mississippi and Florida left. And um, so when I came back from Christmas, my Christmas break, they're like, all right, uh, we've reshuffled the states. Do you want the Western Gulf or the Eastern Gulf? And being a Florida boy, I'm like, definitely the Eastern. I want Florida 100%. Um, and so, uh, I chose Florida and Alabama as my two States, um, Florida, you know, also covers Southeast Atlantic. And, uh, I was able to live in either Mississippi or, Al or, Al or Mobile, Alabama. And, and cause Noah had an office there and I chose that cause it was closer to home. And, um, at first I didn't like it, but then I, 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 I self-adapted and learned to appreciate what was there and, and really loved, loved the place. I miss it. Um, and I, I grew a lot there and, uh, had really good experiences. Um, I ended up leaving NOAA after that. I, I ended up leaving the NOAA's office for coastal management after three years. Um, I didn't see a pathway to becoming a full-time federal, um, uh, employee and um, wanted to work on resiliency from a different angle. So I went to a nonprofit called Smart Home America that was based in Mobile. Um, 
and they worked on building codes and, and practices uh, within the Gulf of Mexico. And so I wasn't changing my geographic s- scope. I was actually kind of expanding it. Um, and I was able to bring in my contacts and expertise um, and network from my NOAA job and into this organization and, and, and build their portfolio in that capacity. And um, yeah, so I did that for two years and got the nonprofit experience. And then um, I saw this Pinellas job pop up and I always knew I wanted to come back to Florida. I just didn't know when. And um, this was an, an area that was on my list of places to live. And um, after coming here for enough conferences, I just really, really liked it. And uh, fortunately, I got it. So everything just kind of fell in line. That's great. An awesome set of of jobs. And, and it's great that you were able to make it back to Florida. So thinking about the future of coastal management and policy, from your perspective, having experience working at the federal, regional, and local level, uh, where where do you see the future of coastal policy and planning going? Um, what do you think the most prominent issues to be addressed over the coming decades will be? Future conditions, 100%. A big issue that many local governments, state governments have is not adapting policy to reflect future conditions. Um, and it's not that hard to do. And it's all a cart on data and information and scenarios. It's just like pick one and let's do it. And not just change one policy, but like all of them. Um, and that's really tough. Um, I, I think that's the foremost pressing issue right now is making sure that climate data is incorporated into policy decisions, ordinances, plans, um, provisions, design and construction, and making sure that they're all in sync with each other so that neighboring communities in county, a coastline, a region are all doing the same thing, or at least within, you know, the same realm of things. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think that's, that's the most, one of the most pressing issues right now. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I could uh, agree with you more there. So our final question for you, Hank, is if you could give any advice to graduate students that are interested in applying to the Sea Grant Canals Fellowship, what would it be? Network now, tell your advisor now, and revise all your plans and timelines to accommodate the fellowship. Hone in on it, make it your goal, you know, and that resonates with the people who will review your application. You know, you go, you go through two rounds of applications. You apply to the C grant, to the state C grant. So they have to look at it and say, you know what? This person has an excellent background and they have strong aptitude and they're smart and they're driven and they've done things, you know, more than just research. 
you know, just publishing isn't enough right now. You need to do a little bit more and get on a board of a nonprofit, you know, go volunteer. You know, it's, it's not the, got to do more than the status quo. Uh, whatever's, you know, required for, for graduation, you got to do more than that. You got to stand out. Um, just, and then, so once like, once the state C grant office and they, they, you submit an application packet and you have to have letters of support. They take that, they rank them and then they interview, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 applicants and they pick five or six to send to Washington, DC. And so every C grant program has their own pool and those go into one national pool. And then you got people at the federal level that are reviewing all these applications and you have to stand out on top of those, right? You have to outrank all of those applications from all these different states. Um, you know, I, I I couldn't believe that I was like selected among people who authored books. I'm like, this is crazy, right? Like uber, uber smart, like intellectual people. Uh, I was just smart in different ways, I guess. Um, and then when you go to DC for interview week, you go to interview weeks in November and you start the following January. I interviewed for 16 positions in three days and they don't come to you. You go to them. So you got to go to all these different agencies across DC, you know, the Metro or Uber and you, you got to time it out right. And you get a half hour to impress yourself upon this person who has, who they could be the head of a division or an agency. You know, they're like some, all-star. And if you really want that position, you got to stand out. Because uh, at like the end- It's speed dating. It is. It is speed dating. Um, at the end, you know, they rank their top fellows and then you rank your top offices and you have to match. So for the C-Grant office, you know, they were my number one office and I was their number one choice because I had that- target on my radar for a while. And I let them know that. And I let them know that everything that I did was for that position and for that office. And, you know, and that got me through the application process, the previous, previous interviews, you know, so that's, I, I just commit, go all in, you know, and if it just so happens that like you're at the end of school and you apply and, and you get it because you've done great things, Congratulations. You know, that's amazing. And that, I mean, and that happens too, you know, and just make sure that when you, when you go there, like you live it, you're, you're a fellow, you're, it's your sports team, you know, it's your tribe and just be all in. I mean, this isn't, it's not an internship. Um, this is something that it's more prestigious, more re remarkable and needs to be treated as such. In it's my an apprenticeship almost. Yeah. It sounds like during, like when you're preparing for the application process to get to DC, you got to act like you're already in DC. Correct. Correct. You want to be there. You know that you should be there. This was meant for you. This is why the opportunity exists. Yeah, that's, that's really great advice, Hank. 
Well, thanks so much, Hank, for joining us today to talk about your experience with the fellowship and your career and coastal policy and planning. Um, we really look forward to seeing where you go from here. Um, and to our listeners, if you are a graduate student interested in applying to the Knauss Fellowship, you can visit our podcast page on the ASPN website for the fellowship webpage link. And for those wondering, applications are due to state Sea Grant programs by February 18th, 2022. Thanks all for tuning in this month. If you have ideas on what you would like to hear for our coastal policy and planning series, or share your story of being a coastal professional in the policy and planning fields, please reach out to us. You can send us an email at asbpa.snp at gmail.com with the subject SNP podcast. Until next time, Coasties, see you later. Mm-hmm.